Alrighty. Hey, <laughs> listeners. Welcome to the PhD This Podcast. We are a podcast about academia. Hold on. Always, okay. Full disclosure. I always forget our tagline. I helped write it and I still forget it. It's like... Should I help you? No, I think you could do it on no, your own. I believe no, in you. No. I believe in you. Well, first of all, there's the internet. This is going to happen for real. So, I don't know why I always do this. We're a podcast about... Hold on. Don't do it, Zine. We're a... <clears throat> hey, listeners. Welcome to another session of the PhD This Podcast. We're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. I am your co-host, Liz Wayne. And I'm your co-host, Zain Yao. And actually, I should actually not call my... I should call myself, like, the... the prodigal daughter like the missing child and i've returned yay Liz. <laughs> but if you, hmm, i don't know if this is a smooth transition but definitely one thing that liz and i wanted to talk to about today is i guess being women in public on the internet because it's Yo, been that was like really smooth yeah because i feel like it's how many years have we been doing this now <laughs> we've been doing this for a long time since 2015 oh god yeah yeah, three years. So we've been on the internet for a while, and our voices have been just, like, flowing through the waves for a while. Mm-hmm. And it feels interesting that now we are, I wouldn't say an establishment, but we definitely have a lot more visibility than we did before. And I think You're that, an establishment. We're a thing, Zine. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we can be your thing. We're a thing. We're legit. Yes. Liz, what we're PhD divas. We are PhD divas. Like we're fancy, we have credentials, we know oh, things. Oh, and Zine, hmm? you can't see me right now, but I wore lipstick for you. Oh, what color? Oh, it's red. Oh, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> so we wanted to talk about our experiences um online, what it's been like making the podcast and what that visibility has meant for us, both in our personal lives and our professional lives, as we've gone from grad students when we first started the podcast to postdocs to future faculty and some of us closer than the others, Dr. Professor Yao. And I wanted to talk about what that was. For me, this is becoming a, a bigger thing for me because of this platform, because of um, being a TED fellow and being able to give a TED talk and really just thinking about women in a, in a, in a, in a deeper way and, and trying to think about what this podcast really does. And in a way, the listeners, you guys, what do you guys tell me and tell Zion about what you think about this podcast? And that has led to me thinking about, well, what are women's voices like in academia? Whenever someone comes to me and they say, PhD divas, oh, you only interview women? Oh, well, that's sexist. And I'm like, Really? No. People give you that? No. Ch- oh. Has anyone ever said that to you? No, but I think maybe because people know it's more unacceptable when they're talking to me about that. I don't know. Maybe I look <laughs> too angry. Because you give them a face because you're like, all okay. right, I got facts. Mm-hmm. Like, don't. But, you know, having a podcast that centers women. So why is that and what's the need? And... Um, I should not say um so often these days. I should uh, know I get edited out. Don't worry. No, it's fine. It's it's like I'm thinking. It's different from giving a speech. And sometimes I want to be in speech mode. But the point is, women are underrepresented in media. 
women are not only asked to be the experts when a news article, let's say it's a documentary or a newspaper article for the Times or a book, they don't ask women. In fact, the the ratio is like only 19% of the time are women cited if you look across the platforms, the publications. And not only are women not asked to be experts, but they don't make up the people who edit and produce the stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what that means is that women don't or when women are eventually erased from the narrative because if you can't if you aren't asked to contribute to the story, if there's an article about I don't know iron iron levels, right? And then every time you interview a scientist about this, it's always a man. Of course, people are going to assume that men are the only scientists who study this. And iron that's not men, true. as it were. Sorry, I couldn't and then help if it. You, what? I said iron men. <laughs> Sorry, okay, I couldn't. Okay. I like a pun. Sorry. Keep going. <laughs> Keep going. See, I was in the middle of something. I was preaching. And then, <laughs> and then you have, if women aren't also allowed to create those stories, then you don't eat, get those stories more those stories that might be centered around a, a woman's experience, right? You don't mm-hmm. get as many of those stories that have a different pr- that perspective on this, and it, it, it erases the culture. So for me, the podcast has become a way of elevating the platform of women voices of experts in the field. In academia, that's what we're doing. We spend years studying one or two topics really well and then we hone our craft we write we talk we experiment we design we implement we create and we want a share in that voice and so if this podcast can serve as that platform to do that then i want to be a part of that and i want to also make this a a space where people can say i need to find an expert in such and such well here's a podcast We've interviewed them, check them out, and then see how this goes. Mm-hmm. And rant <laughs> for now. That was pretty great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Except for the Iron Man part. Sorry, sorry. I just, I just had this like urge to pun just bubbling up inside me. You, you're urge welcome to, to interrupt pun. me. Urge to pun. Yeah. Is that like, n- never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do it. This is my, you know, I'm not gonna do it. But what do you think, Zai? I mean, yeah, what do you I th- think about this? I think what's fascinating is just putting into perspective for me the work that I do in early 19th century American literature that like, I'm particularly interested in women's voices, especially the voices of women of color. And it's sort of strange to think of us actively taking part in this arc, which has gone back like before um, this, this land was colonized. Um, mm-hmm. And... That has always been an issue of like, how do women present themselves in public when they're so under scrutiny, when Mm -hmm. their voices are so embodied in a way that on the one hand gives us a certain type of authority, but at the same time, like allows, uh, sometimes it makes us vulnerable at the same time to being reduced to our embodiment, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a really interesting question. And actually, uh, just a couple of days ago, I finally read Brittany Cooper's first book, which um beyond respectability which is really Mm. awesome and 
what she was doing in that book in particular, so there's quite an extensive literature now on recovering women writers and lifting those voices up. Uh, but mm-hmm. in particular, what she's paying attention to is this legacy of 19th century and early 20th century um, African-American women who, you, everyone's heard these names, like Ida B. Wells um, right. and so forth. Ida Bay. Yeah. yeah. And that people are often aware of them as firsts or like just as names and like what they do, mm-hmm. but don't really pay attention to the content of their writings as intellectual thought in the same way that right. like people writing at the same time get attended to, like that they're they're writing at the same time as like so many other you know 19th century thinkers who get enshrined in philosophy classes and history classes but say Anna Julia Cooper who was one of the first mm-hmm. African American women to get a PhD like she theorized what we now call intersectionality very early she theorized how like black women intervene in the public sphere but mm-hmm. it's very it's much easier in the recovery sort of work again like people be like oh yeah she was the first or this number person to do this but then to really pay attention and cite them is another issue. And I think that's one of the really great things that Brittany Cooper has been doing in her work and reading it was was pretty cool. Yeah, the more I think about it, the more I see the invisibility. And um, somewhere else this comes up is when I talk to past people we've interviewed. So thinking about this, I, I have always, not always, but I've heard when I talk to other sources and, and people ask, well, why aren't there more women being asked to be experts interviewing for like a news publication. And then sometimes I'll say, you know what? I reached out to women and they said, no, they said, well, this isn't quite my expertise. And they recommend someone else and they find that women, men don't do that as often. And mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of frustrating as, as a response. Like really, you really couldn't find one. Right. But when I think about interviews on the podcast, you know, and sometimes people will say, well, I don't know if I'm the right person to interview for this podcast or this this topic, or I'm not sure. You know, there's a there's this there is a given back and forth, which I think undoubtedly has to do with the platform. When we've interviewed women, and I've spoken to some of them, and I'd love to see this if you've had this impression as well. But sometimes it can be hard to coax people into it, and sometimes it's because they don't know how being on a podcast interacts with their scholarship. Yeah. Um, in their professional life. But other times it's because they don't know if they're the expert. They don't know what they're going to sound like. And they really have to do this kind of mental, professional, personal gymnastics around what does this mean? What am I putting out there into the universe that I don't do or not have control? Of? Will I be judged for this? Will this make trolls come my way? Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting. And I find that that's a conversation we have when we first start. Yeah, I remember but all that anxiety. After it's anxiety. But after it's over... It ends up being like, a, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. My voice sounds great. Or people ask me about this now. Like I go on job interviews and people say, oh, I heard your podcast. And now I, I want to know more about how you think about X in Y way. Mm. And it actually is useful and it's a platform. And I, I think I've personally seen people kind of evolve and, and like think of their voice a little bit differently just because we're doing the podcast. Um Have you had conversations with women before versus after the podcast? Not specifically, but I do think that there, I I definitely agree that there's a sort of thing where we devalue ourselves. And like, there's been so many studies about how that happens on the level of like, which women, even outside academia, um, apply to which jobs when they have only Mm -hmm. which percentage of qualifications versus men. Um, 
way that women are more likely to drop out of majors when they get a B, whereas like men are fine with C's. And so they end right. up like finishing majors. And so I think it is all this uh, continuation of who feels entitled to be called an expert. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's interesting to see that in the present moment. To give an example, uh, our listeners have probably heard of Jordan Peterson, who is the shame of Canadian academia. But he mm. is not someone who works on philosophy. I think he's a psychology professor. But anyways, like his recent book, from my understanding, like tries to like work on philosophy and on the um, 18th century Enlightenment philosophers. And I've seen some really scathing reviews pointing out how poor his scholarship is. But it doesn't matter because he doesn't care that he is not engaging with like the centuries of scholarship on this or any of the active debates. He's not has doesn't have to worry that he's citing anyone properly. He just doesn't care because his misreadings are he's just so confident in himself that his misreadings right. are, are the way to understand these things. Right. And if if in any small way possible, and I actually don't think it's that small, but this is why we have the PhD Vis podcast. Because women are experts. Women are scholars. And this is a platform to help them establish that, that they are plat- they are scholars, to help the world see that there is scholarship, that there is a history and a background, and again, centuries of work, and there's a way in which we play into that work. And having your voice heard, being able to tell and craft that story, as well as being able to depict whose stories you tell, that's power, mm-hmm. and that's what we want. I think that's, that's one thing that makes me really happy about doing this, is on the one hand, I Besides think it's, me. yeah, I think that honestly, <laughs> this has helped us maintain our friendship, especially as we've been moving like everywhere. Like that, that in itself has been invaluable. Uh, but I was going to say Design that. I blushed. I dark skin blushed. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> You're like, how did that happen? What? Um, I was going to say, no, it's funny because it reminds me of. <laughs> Darwin, one of his final works was called The Expression of Emotion in Man and Animals, and he has this infamous comment about not being able to tell when um, African-descended people blush or not. Mm. Anyway, but (laughs) history of science aside, I was going to say that what I think is sort of amazing when we think about what we've done with the podcast is that we started it in a position of like precarity as like ABDs who weren't sure where we're going to go and like right this is sort of just followed our trajectory and I think we've tried to be really honest as much as we could given our vulnerability in the system and also the fact that we managed to make something where we're able to help other women I think that makes me really happy that we're able to to help our colleagues to raise their voices and then that we're also reaching people we've never never met in person and that it's helped them feel just a little bit less alone. Like that makes me feel, you know, that I've made, I've done something worthwhile, a little, some, yeah, in my life. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I totally get you. I totally get you. So if you want to be on the podcast, reach out to us. Mm-hmm. Tell us what this podcast has meant to you reach out to us, sorry. So you can please do this at our handles um, at PhDVis Podcast on Facebook and Twitter, um, SoundCloud if you really feel like it, but mostly Facebook and Twitter. We want to hear from you. This is what the podcast has meant to us, is what we think it means to you, but we want to hear from you to let, for you guys to let us know. Mm-hmm. So let's switch gears a little bit and let's go from what it means to put our voices out there and then what the response is from the internet. <laughs> mm. So what is it like being a woman on the internet? Oh my God. 
I think it's. I'm grateful that we haven't gotten as many like trolls and weirdos the way that I had worried we would. To be honest, Mm -hmm. knock on wood. Like I'm almost afraid to say that in case they do come out of the woodwork. One thing I've been thinking about a lot is, well, what Chanda, if our listeners remember, we interviewed Chanda. Uh, for this episode called now Dark professor yes now Chanda professor uh, we're so yes. she's amazing she just got hired for both astrophysics and science and technology studies feminist science and technology studies like that's brilliant and they're so lucky to have her uh, but one a phrase that she's been using a lot i'm not sure um if she coined it herself was had to do with like disposability culture have you mm. seen her comment on no, this no go on uh, but go that on. as a consequence of voices being in public sometimes now people are being held up to such a high level of scrutiny that if you made a mistake in your past, it's almost like people, on the one hand, accountability is always important, but at the same time, people are very quick to gen- completely um, de- declare people being disposable. Even those mm-hmm. often like um, queer people, women of color, people of color, and so forth, as she points out, are already vulnerable, are already in a society that deems them to be disposable. And so when people like slip up a little bit and then they truly do try to do better and to still only try to exile them or discard them only reproduces that disposability, um, which I thought was a very interesting point. Like sometimes it seems like there's, it's difficult to have space for people. Well, I think people always need to recognize their mistakes and then try to improve, but to after that point, like how do people grow? And I think that's something that's very tricky about being on the internet because, yeah, I think that the scrutiny is is good, but on the one hand, it also is sort of like what philosopher Foucault called the panopticon, which is this uh, type of prison that was designed by philosopher Jeremy Bentham, where the idea is that everyone is surveilling everyone else. And so there's this uh, a culture of continual scrutiny from everyone else. So you don't know where to mm-hmm. trust and it's this type of paranoia. And yeah, that part is obviously what's unhealthy because I sometimes see, and there's been a couple of articles written about this in the in the past couple of years called like called up call it culture is toxic or excommunicate me from the church of social justice where sometimes rather than being focused on social justice work, sometimes this ends up being a type of like social hierarchy game yeah. where people and then are trying the to take each other down. To be, when is it that someone's being uh, quote unquote disposed of as in like this should have been done a long time ago versus no this is a growth thing you know like where is that distinction because what we're currently going through is like the I mean obviously the Me Too moment where uh, using an example Harvey Weinstein yes this person has is a serial mm-hmm. you know assault person and who should be kind of removed but people want to use that same narrative of like oh well this call-out culture is going too far versus Mm -hmm. this and so I, I do think that we that there needs to be the distinction and I think where we are struggling now is finding out where is that line definitely and when have we gone too far or not too far but what I think going back to this idea of um sensitive populations what i what i think it means is that for people who are in already uh, disenfranchised groups mm-hmm. who are not assaulting anyone who are really kind of doing the the normal life existence it can be very hard to perform that or to feel like other people may watch because you'll be scrutinized even more harshly um, for doing things that you may see your male counterparts doing um, and so 
one of the things I think interesting of being being a woman on Twitter or being being any of these identity groups openly on Twitter is something that I've been thinking about recently because I went I had an event and um, I was giving a talk and it was really exciting but people were around me and they're like oh my god is this you oh my god I follow you on Twitter and then they're and another person said oh my god I love your Twitter is their Twitter great and they're talking to each other about my Twitter and I've never seen these people before and so for me, it was just kind of eye-opening because I always thought of my Twitter as like, I'm a small fish, I follow other people, but really I'm just here for the labs and I'm kind of following my friends. So these are people that I know or I've met personally or I've known online, but really like nobody's following me, right? And to know that people kind of were following me and then admit things as in because they liked what I was saying, it was leading to opportunities or other people were reaching out. It made me feel kind of scared. I was terrified mm-hmm. because even though they had said they liked what I was doing, I also understood that that could easily one day mean they don't like what I'm doing. And and as soon as and is in a seem in a similar way that the people liking what I'm doing could lead to potential opportunities and fans, so to speak. It could also mean that they like, oh nope, that one tweet though that was too far, and then it leads to like disinvites in a way and so I kind of felt extremely sensitive around that and what that means for people and just really having people that I don't know and not even people that I know of you know like the the circles of the spheres of influence are getting larger and I just don't think of my I didn't think of myself that way Mm -hmm. but I think it can be very hard because for me I'm thinking oh god I, I I like you know, sometimes I'll like or retweet. I want to tweet like a fart joke. I want to retweet like, you know, when hashtag Black Hogwarts comes on. I want to like be, I want to be there. <laughs> I want to be with Hogwarts. You know, I want to send out funny black stuff. But I'm like, okay, but I have a science platform. So, so how much can I send without, it made me start thinking of how much can I do without like um, knocking down the opportunities that I get or like the system or like, throwing off people who might hire me because I don't have a job yet. So I think that's really a lot to try to process online. I definitely agree. I think that, well, I was also going to say when you you said like people don't follow you, I think you have over 2000 followers on Twitter. (laughs) But But, you know, but that's also small. That's, That's yeah, true. And like compared to like, you like, it's not like you're at this level where we got the blue check mark. The, right. Uh, I don't even know what that means. Oh, I think I'm starting to learn what that oh, means. Oh, the verified. No, I know it means oh, okay. verified, but there are other things that come with that that I don't understand. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, it's like this this evolution, and um, it, it was weird, but I, it, it's it's just a weird thing. <laughs> and the other thing that's been that happened was I looked at the comments on my TED talk. Oh, I remember. <laughs> I remember some of the initial ones. How? How they? No, no, no. Okay. Not the ones on TED.com. The ones on YouTube. Oh. Uh huh. Oh god. And I just did that oh, no. um, for the first time last week. No, yes, no, Sunday this weekend, and I was looking at them with my roommate, and it was interesting. I mean, it, it was expected. It was expected, but it kind of confirmed a thing that mm-hmm. I kind of hoped wasn't going to be true and Mm -hmm. that is that even though my talk was purely about science 
a lot of the comments revolved around um, the fact that I was a woman and the fact that I was black. And, and I mean, like, you know, oh, she's a, she's a black person and she's, and she's look this is proof that black people can be smart if they really put their minds to a kind of thing like respectability Uh or or you know every time i hear a woman on stage i'm i just think they're gonna do sjw talk like a social justice warrior talk and so you know that they were they were kind of saying like wow she's not talking about race or like what it so it was really interesting that um even having a science platform talking about science people were still asking questions about my gender and my race those things were coming up mm-hmm. and it, so i know for a fact that and i think i've always known this that people don't separate i don't get to just talk about science i you know i also have to be a woman at the same time and i have to be black mm-hmm. or people think before i even walk in turn before i open my mouth people think this is what I'm going to be talking about, right? Like diversity. They think I'm going to be talking about like how you're wrong. <laughs> and sometimes you are, but, <laughs> but it's, it's kind of, it's, it's interesting. I would find it traumatizing, I think, to get that level of scrutiny. I think, uh, um, sorry, this... my leg is falling asleep. Oh, it's okay. I was <laughs> okay. going to say that uh, despite the podcast, I'm still really wary of putting my voice in public. And so mm-hmm. I don't know if you've noticed, like I, on Twitter, I rarely tweet in my own voice. I usually mm-hmm. just retweet things or, retweet, or tweet out articles or everything will be very strictly professional. Why is that? Um, so a number of reasons, but part a large part of it is like I don't – I feel like to be good on Twitter, you have to be like funny and witty. And often <laughs> I'm just not capable of doing that for Twitter. And so I don't feel like I've – I don't know. I don't think I've crafted enough need, of a like, voice. You need like a thousand characters. Yeah. Because just... you need to be like – all right, in 1700, the philosopher <laughs> Stephen Holmes wrote this <laughs> tome called Inequitable Equitabilities, and it introduced this context of natural equity, and that led to um, Asian people. <laughs> I don't know if you would be really. <laughs> Clearly, I am not an expert. This is fascinating, like subject. Yeah, but I would, but I would, I would still try. Yes, but yeah, I feel, I still feel awkward about putting my voice in public. Your joke setup would be way too long. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm yeah. bad at jokes. The problem is, I just really well, like getting to punchlines. Uh, I don't really know what else I, what I have that's worthwhile sharing, to be honest. <laughs> like that's that's okay. still honestly what I what I feel sometimes. So that's that's part of the reason why I don't really tweet in my oh, own voice. Oh, you're serious. Also, hmm. I feel like like on Facebook, I allow myself to be like very silly, and I try to share like stupid things I've done or whatever. Yeah, you do. I, you do share silly on Facebook. But like Twitter is not is not the space for me to be silly, or like I don't feel quite comfortable about that. Because it's kind of professional. Yeah. Although, have you noticed? I don't know if it's the case for you. I think that Facebook has become like LinkedIn for academics. What? That's what I've noticed. Like, sometimes I'm, I've been getting, uh, increasingly over the last year, getting friend requests from academics I've never met, and that we have a lot of like network stuff in common. But again, we've never met in person. 
And so I've never, never sure whether I should accept it or not. And then I usually like ask some mutual people like, oh, is this person okay? And they're like, oh, they seem fine. But then what I find odd is like after we do become friends, I've been trying to also like send a message being like, oh, thanks for reaching out. And sometimes even though they've, they're the ones who requested me and have added me, they don't actually engage with my posts and they don't respond to me. And I don't quite understand why. Like, is it just about the expansion of a professional network then for some people like mm. LinkedIn? But also it's sort of weird for me then to get those requests because it's weird then if I turn them down. I'm not quite sure what to think about why that. Why is it weird if you turn them down? Because then it seems like it's like a personal and professional insult. Not, no. They don't even know. You could just be like, oh, I have looked at my friend request box in like ages. Yeah, maybe. <sighs> well, I mean, honestly, the only thing is now they listen to the podcast. So now they're like, oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, if you're, if you're one of those people, you know, it would be nice to actually talk to you and meet you in person. Would it I feel really, like that'd though? Be... I don't sign. Yeah. I, I try to be open-minded. It's nice to make new friends. Mm. You can be open-minded and close Facebook, you know? That's true. That's true. Anyway, anyway, back to back to the, the topic. Um, it is hard. It is hard, like, trying to, to be online and to, to do things and, you know, trying to remain authentic. I think what I would say the struggle is, is like, you're really struggling with what to say and how to say it. And, and also like how to get a response from it that you, a desirable response and like how to do that. And that can be very um, anxiety inducing to the point of not doing anything at all. Mm -hmm. And I mean, me personally, you've seen me, so I do, I retweet, but I also do post things that I'm thinking or doing, and and they surprise me occasionally. It's like, whoa, okay, people like that. And I try to fight this idea of doing things because people like them, or, or also the, I'm not going to retweet this because I have a, I know who's following me now. You mm -hmm. know, like, I know that, you know, my department's following me, so they're going to see this and like, Oh, you know what? But if they don't know this about me already, then, then they need to know that. Right. People need to know who they're hiring. Yeah. So it's like, it's a double edged sword, but I do find that I kind of, my way of dealing with it is to embrace it and to kind of like ask myself, will I regret this in 10 years? And like, will I be able to look back and say, at that point in time, this is represents what I was, what I was thinking? Mm. Because if I can do that, then I'm okay with that. I'm okay with not being the same person 10 years from now, but I don't think I'd be okay with doing something, like, rash or something that I would regret even now kind of thing. Um, but I do, I do get scared. I do, mostly when people I don't know come up to me. And I am coming to the awareness that this, that um, I have merged my professional and personal on the Twitter. Yeah. And so far, it's only that people like, and I like. I mean, obviously, I like it. I do it. And I meet people, and it's it's great. But yeah, I just it is, it is very challenging. I find people being very scrutinizing themselves to the point of not wanting to say anything at all, and. Um, sometimes that makes me sad because I think that there's a part of the internet that is social. Uh, well, it's all social and it's communal and you have a voice and I want people to hear 
your voice, but if you're too afraid to do so, like the environment is not always nice for that. Like you have to be bold. You have to, if you have to be like aggressively bold to do it, it's like prefacing for this one type of person to be the outspoken people on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And that's not okay. Zion, I want your thousand character joke. I do. Oh, I'm just not that funny. It's fine. Maybe in a thousand characters you will be. <laughs> uh, Make it an anime. Give me some. Oh. Give me some like pun. Give me another pun. Give me some satire. Give me some like words I don't understand. And then be like, oh, you don't get it. Never mind. And then give me like a shady look at the end. Like just do that. <laughs> uh, our standard interactions. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's Pretend also. Pretend like I'm an undergrad <laughs> in Beta House or something. You know. I think vulnerability is very tricky. I'm still trying you, to figure that yeah. out. Yeah, I have a lot of issues with vulner being vulnerable. <laughs> like, I think I'm getting better at being vulnerable strategically, which I think is something I've very much learned from you. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but still, like, my, my instinct is just to, like, have my have my guard up and, like, I don't know. I have this image You're of that. A turtle. Ooh. Yeah, like a turtle or like I think of like I think it's the Ankylosaurus is one of the dinosaurs that has like tons of the, like, the spiky bits. And that's me in the world. It's also me when I try to date online, but that's another topic entirely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I, just, I don't know. I don't know about you. I don't want to be vulnerable. And sometimes I think like, the best offense is a good defense. And so I'll just be like, okay, I'll be just be like very aggressive and hostile. <laughs> Or like I'll try to seem scary, so so people will be scared, and that sometimes backfires too. Yeah. Yeah, it can backfire. It all. Oh God. Yeah, we should be doing a dating podcast. We said we were gonna do that. All right, listeners. So if you're actually paying attention, if you want a dating podcast from the PhD Divas, you gotta let us know. Yeah. And if you don't listen to this, then we'll know, and then there won't ever be a dating podcast. You won't get to hear about um, those spicy tender swipes. <laughs> Actually, oh. no one should hear about that. I'm just kidding. I don't do that anymore. It's bad time. <laughs> what are we doing? Um, how about we wrap this one up? Yeah, I think yeah. that's a great. You know, before my mom listens to this, um, you know, spicy tinder swipes. It sounds almost like a good appetizer. Yeah, it sounds like something from Wendy's or McDonald's. I'm. I would eat it. With the special sauce, right? Yeah, especially the spicy that's not bit. Not academic. Um. Yeah, being woman. <laughs> say something academic about. Wait, oh my god! I bet. Say something academic about spicy chicken. I dare you. I know to you can. To say something spicy about. Um, I think it's really say cool. Say something scholarly about to it. To say something scholarly. Well, there's that one amazing historian of Black Southern food whose book finally came out this year. Um, I really <laughs> want to check that check that out. But he's been a, like a commentator for such a long time, and I'm sure he'd probably have a section talking about something like that. Michael Twitty? I, I think, yeah. Is that his name? Yeah, he's also a TED fellow. Oh, yeah, yeah that makes a ton of sense. But I guess that's <laughs> that's where my mind goes. But I think um, someone who would be doing academic work in that area. Yeah, I think we should introduce a new game into the podcast where, like, I ask you to make something scholarly of something, like, really, like, basic. Because I know you can. Oh, I, I do have the power. You could give, like, a, you could give, like, a century... You gotta you gotta give a century, you gotta give an author or a book, and then like a conflict or something. Yeah. I think you could do it on anything. 
did I tell you that one time I got in this competition with a friend when he's like, uh, when we're trying to talk about most uh, pedantic Was this your paper? first date? No, it wasn't. It was with a friend. Uh, oh, like most pedantic okay. like paper ever. And he said like, mm -hmm. oh, the most obscure one I ever came across was about, um, I think the re reproductive system of barnacles. And then me and everyone around us was like, uh, I don't think that that's obscure. Like actually that makes a lot of sense. And my example was the one mm -hmm. that people said hands down was the most obscure which is the use of the word or in John Milton's <laughs> Paradise Lost. I was like, ha, ha. <laughs> that sounds like something I wrote like freshman year in college, like, and they were like, you need 15 pages. And I'm like, well, or. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an impressive work. I think Milton's scholarship is such an interesting field. Like I even briefly thought about doing it, but like, there's people are incredibly smart and really good at doing these almost like absurd and arguments. And were way more interesting than or. Yeah, I think because of that one paper, someone <laughs> else in my graduate seminar was like, okay, I'm now going to write about the Miltonic and or like some other conjunction. Mm. Mm. Okay, I'm going to think of some good ones for the next pod because I think this is a good game. I think of a name for our game. But anyway. Yeah, thanks for thank listening. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end of the PhD this podcast. Woohoo! <laughs> As always, please follow us on at hashtag PhDVisPodcast or at PhDVisPodcast on Facebook and Twitter. Um, subscribe, help us reach other followers. Please answer any questions you have. Let us know how the podcast affected you, if you like what we're doing and want to see more. And Zion, do you have any other announcements? Uh, I don't. I mean, I think it's it makes me so happy to hear from people that they got something out of this. Yeah. Really makes my day. And I'll screen cap it and send it to Liz. Aw. Actually, she does do that yeah. all the time. She's like, oh, my God, I heard from somebody. I'm like, I'm like, okay, I'm excited. Because then, then I'll roll back over, like, going to lab or something. Yeah. Like, what, really for example, like, it. a friend of mine visited Hong Kong, and her friend in Hong Kong knew about us and was like, oh, my God, you know Zine. <laughs> I don't remember her name. Otherwise, I'd say hi to this person. But, yeah. They didn't call you Zine? Uh, I think, well, obviously they listened to the podcast, but they said Zion. At least maybe my friend said Zion. But yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah. See you next time. I should stop saying see you next time. I'm not going to see you. You know I what I mean? Like, hear you, but then hear you next time sounds weird. And then, yeah. like, play you next time. Or listen listen to us time. next time. Catch you next time. I'm out. Maybe I'm just like, I'm out. Mic drop. Don't drop the mic because our mics are expensive. <laughs>